From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlew, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. Today I'm joined by my two friends, longtime co-hosts and collaborators, Professor Shane Jensen, Professor Adi Weiner, both of the Statistics and Data Science Department here at Penn. Uh, some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. So how are you guys doing today? Excellent. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Good, good. Looking well, forward to the upcoming baseball season. Well, as, as Shane is the perfect segue here, given you know I'm hosting today and Kate will be back. Do not worry, fans. Kate will be back. Um, you know I'm going to want to talk a lot about baseball. Um, actually, I'm going to go out of order. I had a different order I wanted to go in, but let me go straight to baseball since Shane brought it up. So I'm going to ask you guys to make some sort of predictions. Yes, no. I'm going to say some stats for the baseball season. But I want both yes, no, but your explanation of why you think yes, no, and what statistical principle is making you think yes, no. So let's start with the first one. I'll start with Shane. But Adi, I want you to answer this too. Will anyone hit over 50 home runs this year, Shane? Yes, I think so. I mean, what the last couple years it's been, I guess I don't have this information on hand, but I think it's, uh, we've, 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 I mean, obviously, we've had one in the AL recently. Um, but it's not been that often. I mean, no. it, it's well, not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Shane, what I mean, are you so let me ask you, Shane, from a process point of view, is your thought. So let me ask you and then you'll tell me whether I'm thinking wrong. One is you could just take the empirical frequency over the last some number of yeah. years. Obviously, the farther you go back, you have more data. But on the other hand, maybe it's less relevant. The other possibility is you think home runs are only going up, you know, got to hit the long ball. And so you're going to, even if 50 weren't hit in the past, maybe you increase that because more guys are swinging for the fences. Just how are you thinking about solving it? Forget your answer and then I'll get to Adi. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about, um, you know, I guess I'm thinking about home run, you know, sort of trends and stuff like that. And the kind of like obviously prevalence for the kind of, hit for the sort of uh, swing for the fences kind of hitter that we see so commonly in baseball these days. I mean, I'm, maybe we're kind of in a little bit of a counter-revolution in that these days, but I still do think we have a lot of power hitters out there, and it's something that's, you know, kind of basically been sort of pushed in all the development leagues coming coming up. So, so that's... Hi, what do you I think? We getting a 50 yeah, home I mean, run I'm gonna I'm going to throw it out. Our entire childhood... There was like no 50 home run hitters. There was one, George Foster. One, George Foster. That was like 1975 or something, right? And that was remarkable. And we went through the 80s and not any. And then I even, I think it was like Brady Anderson, didn't he? Had some? Brady Anderson had a year when he hit 50. But just so everyone knows, Hank Aaron never hit 50. Willie Mays hit 50 once in his career. You know, it wasn't between Mantle and Maris. And then George Foster, I think there was no one. And then barely any. Exactly. It's such a mark that we think of 50 as like a long shot. But yeah. And by the way, I, I don't, I'm not putting it at above 50% or something like that. But well, I do I mean, think I it's love, more I probable than it used to yeah, be. I mean, I mean, I mean, Matt Olson did it last year. And mm-hmm. you had uh, Aaron Judge the year yep. before. And Super Aaron team. Judge is coming back. And this, and it's hard to imagine Aaron Judge not competing for that in his how much of the season did in an injury play? free i it, it is yeah. not hard to imagine aaron judge of course, not that's, playing that's the 50 percent. i mean i would say aaron judge by himself is probably 25 percent. is that crazy am i crazy am i being a fan yes. come on just shane smack yes, me you are being a fan uh, if he well <laughs> shane if i tell you he plays 140 games does he <laughs> or more does he hit 50 Ah, uh, I mean, that definitely increases the odds. Yeah. But, but I mean, again, I, I would even at that point put it at 50%, right? Okay. Well, that's, let me ask you, that's a big if. Let me move on to my next stat. So, Adi, we'll start with you. Does anyone hit over 350? I, I would put greater probability on 50 home runs than hitting 350. I'll say that right away. All right. So, since we're a stat show, let's talk some stats. Why are you saying that? It might be obvious to you. But why are you saying 50 home runs is more likely than 350? Like, What calculation would you do to right. make that? So obviously, the calculation you would do would have to look at historical data, get some base, some recent base rates, but yeah. also look at the individual personalities. And frankly, there isn't that kind of hitter in, in abundance in the major leagues anymore. I mean, there was a time where the Ichiro Suzuki, the Wade Boggs, the Rod Carew types. Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn's. 
the, 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 the hitters that wanted to get lots of hits were a bunch. And then you can expect one of them to have a good season and hit 350. I mean, Tony Gwynn did it a lot, right? And Rod Carew did it a lot. Those are gone. But I think 350 is a greater standard deviation than 50 home. And not because it's a greater standard deviation. There's a few superstars on the home run side that make it a good shot amongst just the group, from Alonzo to Olsen to, to Judge to even Trout, who's never done it but has come close a lot, to freaking Otani's a monster. I mean, yeah. it's a bunch of guys who, who you could think of maybe one of them doing it. I don't know who's going to hit 350. What's There's interesting – Right. What's interesting, I want our listeners on Wharton Moneyball to hear Adi's answer because there's a subtle point he's making that's important. Probably the number one predictor of whether 350 is more likely than 50 home runs is how many people are in this set of potentials because yeah. it's, you know, it's the maximum. I just said at least one. So you just need one person. You don't, I didn't say who. You just need one person. You need the maximum of a set of, let's call them coin flips, to equal above 350 or above 50. The more flips you have, the more chance you have of it. So let me give, now, you, let me give you a couple. Yeah, of I mean, just, just add a little perspective. I think five players last year had batting averages above like 325. Last only year, five. five. Last year. Five. And that's that's already like you know only one got above three fifty. One did get above three fifty. Yeah, right. Just yeah. so Arias, but he was like a shocker that he would do it. Uh, you're and there's he was flirting with four hundred for a while. But he was flirting, and um and so I was just trying to point it out. The the league average batting average is lower than two fifty, and the the binomial standard deviation is about twenty points over five hundred at bats. So. You need a guy who's got to be around the 310, 320 mark as their true probability to be hitting 350. Yeah, I, 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 right. I, I, I agree that a 50 home run hitter is more likely. But I, I again, it, it, you know, if, if you kind of, I, I think it, the same kind of logic applies to batting averages, home runs. You don't looking at the league average of home run hitting is not the right thing. It's like how many yeah, it, 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 players it, it, are kind of elite players on that aspect are out in that right so, tail. So that's just, and that's, so I think I, it is more like, you know, I mean, yeah, five last year were within sniffing distance of it. Is that yeah. enough? You know, are, are, are the Acunas and Freemans and kind of Araz areas uh, of the world? Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts. I mean, there, there are people that could do it. I, I agree that you're right. I think there are a larger set of yeah. home run hitters that could hit 50 than there are batting average type hitters that could hit 350 but i mean i think that you you know looking at kind of the league average is not necessarily yeah that's why i said the sample size of potentials but adi i'll just turn it into a a z score right so i think there are lots of hitters who's who who are not only where 40 is a good estimate around around maybe 10 and i think it's just over about one one and a one and a quarter standard deviations if you're expected to 40 to hit 50 um, no, I and I mean, what, what if we really could, I mean, if we had all the knowledge in the universe and wanted to do this calculation, what you do is you take every single player's individual kind of distribution yeah, yeah. of performance, yeah, sure, sure. see how often, you know, what's their kind of, what per- yeah. what probability they have of overlapping 350 right. and add them up. And I, 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 I agree that, you know, there's just not as many, you know, with uh, players with that 350 overlap. All right, well, you know, since I'm the effect size guy, I might as well ask, I'll start with Adi because it's a Yankees question. So let's imagine Aaron Judge gets moved to his correct position, which is hitting third, but Soto's hitting behind him. So I always like to ask, I'll ask it the same question I ask every week. I ask you Aaron Judge's probability, you give me some number, let's say you say 25%. I now tell you Juan Soto is hitting behind him. How much do you change that number? Does he get much better pitches to hit? Does that like is this like twenty five to twenty six percent, or is this twenty five to thirty percent? Because I know you're not going to say a bigger number than it's a five percent increase. So realistically, does it increase it any? Like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig hit behind yeah, him. Sure. That was a big help. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's funny. I really wish I had a more. I've spent more time in my life studying that because um, I really feel like. That's a, that's something that I should know more data driven, have a better data driven answer to that. I know that I've talked to MLB analytics folks who will say, yes, it matters, but I think they've also implied that it matters a lot less than we think it matters. Um, so I would love to do that myself and, and get some information. Um, how my, my gut would say is that, I mean, he's always had a decent hitter behind him. And, and so basically looking at the step up from who's been behind him to right. Soto and what does that really matter? 
it's got to affect his walk rate, right? Um, but I think for the most time, most part, um, I, I, I would I would say it's less than 25%. I wouldn't say it's as low as five, but I would be more inclined to say it's 10 to 15%. Um, smaller than you think it is, but not, not irrelevant. Um, because I think if you look at the act, how many times he hits a home run, many times he's the first at bat, many times he comes with no one on base and you're just, you're just going to face him, and I think you're going to face him any differently than than uh, if Soto were behind him or or whoever has been batting behind him. See, I don't even know how bad it Stanton. is. Stanton. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. Stanton, well, I mean, Riz, Rizzo, too, was batting behind Rizzo and Stanton, you know, Rizzo, right. Rizzo or Stanton. Those are not – those are good hitters. I mean, Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it, right. I mean, I don't think yeah. – I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess – I, I personally think I, I I think Juan Soto will be a will provide a real contribution to the Yankees, but more of a first order contribution of what he's actually doing, as opposed to I mean, just for perspective, I just looked it up. I think Aaron Judge was only like intentionally walked like nine times all of last year. Yeah, and I know intentional walks are only one part of the story of how protect you know like you know a lack of protection can can affect you, but like. I, I I don't think I don't think that second order is nearly as dramatic as what he's going to do just by. You know, Aaron Judge also, getting base and Swan just, Soto hitting him in or whatever. Just to move on to my next topic, but it's related. Like, I was going to ask you guys about RBIs, and like, I was going to, I said 130 in the spreadsheet, but I probably should have asked 150. Let me ask a different question, but it's related. Let's imagine I had a histogram of, let's just say for the last five years, of every hitter and how many home runs they hit. Okay. And I had the same for batting average, and I had the same for RBIs. Would it be wrong if I wanted to know, let's say, a percentile or the probability of some event? Should I just take a, the same percentile of each distribution and compare it? And what I mean by that is, would you feel comfortable? Let's imagine the 99th percentile of the home run distribution is, I'm making up a number, 43. And the 99th percentile of the batting average distribution was 330. The 99th percentile of the RBI distribution was 140. Would you put a half a percent, meaning two-tailed, or one percent above each of those numbers equally? Is that all I have to do? Or would you worry about what Shane talked about earlier? There's trends going on. Would I worry about some of these numbers have more stickiness than others? Or, you know, how would I think about, is it simply just grab the percentile of each 99th percentile is a 99th percentile? Who cares what it is? Or is that not correct thinking? I mean, some of them are much rarer events, and so you'd kind of be like, you know, like like the number of intentional walks, for example. I think it'd be like very noisy to do that type of thing, or the number of triples, or I don't know how stolen bases would work for something like that. But for some for something where you kind of, I feel like we're kind of norming, like where you're kind of comparing things with somewhat of an equal number of opportunities, like the denominators, like a plate appearance for hits for, versus all these other things. I think in that case, I I. What you, what you said mostly makes sense, other than maybe some trends you yeah. want to pay attention to. So I think trends are important that you have to think about that. I'll finish with that. I'll, I'll start with that. But the second thing is, I always worry about trying to study the distributions of extrema. They can screw you bad. I mean, if we talk, one of the most powerful tricks in statistics is called the bootstrap. We don't talk about it that much, but it's it's a great. Well, let's trick. be clear, Adi. I'm taking yeah. the distribution of everybody in percentile. What I'm not doing, which I could have done also, just for our listeners, and I want you to get back to the bootstrap is. What's the maximum number of home runs hit in any given year? Let me do that for the last 60 years. I'll compute the distribution of the maximum in each year, yeah. and then I'll use that. That's yeah. a different approach, by the way. But Adi, keep going back yeah, to Yeah, and, and so the bootstrap will fail when you're trying to get the, the variance on, a, on, a, on a, an extrema. And a 99 percentile is a pretty much an extrema quantity. And so I would be cautious with that because you can have all kinds of weird behavior. And, and, and then even though you have historical data, you, that historical data is probably not that useful at estimating a tail event. You, you'd really like a model. And, and the model will be much more um, steadfast and valuable than just looking at empirical st stats. It's, it's where, where probability earns its, its, its chops in the extrema. Yeah, and, and where, where, where kind point. of – Recent trends would be even more important and looking at historical data would be probably more biased is turning this to the pitching side. I mean, you know, obviously estimating the number of the maximum number of wins for next season, you would be very missing, you know, be very biased looking at too, looking too far in the past because pitching, you know, the nature of pitching has trended very, very dramatically in the last like decade yeah. or two. All right. Well, guys, that's been a lot of fun talking about. To me, this is statistics, and we've been talking using baseball as an example. I have four quick things. We have about five minutes left, so we're going to spend a minute on each. All right. Let's start with Major League Baseball. I'll take 
the Dodgers, the Brewers, the Astros, the Braves, the Yankees, and the Rangers. And I'll give you the other 24 teams. Am I nuts? For the World Series? I'll start with you. I'll take those six. The Dodgers, the Brewers, Astros, Braves, Yankees, and Rangers. And you have the other 24 to win the World Series. I'm only taking 25% of the teams. I'm giving you 75%. Or I'm giving you 80 You're taking kind of the top. I mean, I don't know why the Brewers are in there, but you're trying to kind of pick off the top teams. Yeah, exactly. I take the I, top six, and I'll give you the other 24. You have 80% of the teams. I have 20%. Who are you taking? I'm taking the top. I'm taking the top. I'm taking the top teams. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, pay, payroll and 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 be, being one of a big one of the big teams doesn't guarantee you playoff success or anything like that. But it's pretty hard for one of the other teams to sneak through. That said, last year the Arizona Diamondbacks would not have been in that six we chose. They would not. I did not put them in there. And by the way, yeah, I'm not I'm sure not... the Rangers would have been either. But yeah, ahead. that's right. I, I could say that uh, that I don't think I'm much more than fifty five percent with that. All right, let's go to the next sports. We have a minute each. I'll take the Nuggets, the Clippers, the T-Wolves, the Celtics, the Bucks, and the Heat. So I'm going to take those six, and I'm going to give you the other, whatever it is in the NBA, the other 26 teams. What are you doing now? I'm definitely taking the top six in basketball, right? Why do you say that? This is what I want to discuss with our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Why do you say that for basketball, but not for baseball? Because basketball, less playoff randomness, yeah, by far less. Well, I mean, I mean, that's mostly what would be driving this kind of calculation, right? I mean, if it was, if we we're talking like you know making the playoffs or something like that, you'd have, you know, obviously the top. T- it's it's not guaranteed, but like top teams tend to do that. It's really playoff randomness that kind of lets us have fun things like the Arizona Diamondbacks. I just you don't see that as much in basketball. So, Adi, you said 55% for baseball. What about for my basketball six? Nuggets, so, Clippers, T-Wolves, Celtics, Bucks, and Heat. So I have my 90%? Ordinarily, I would say in the 80-90%. But I don't know about this year, and I don't know whether this year is is uh, has the, the hallmarks of different uh, attributes. And I think basketball is changing in, in the way that the, the regular season sort of plays out. So I'm not going to offer any more of, a, of an expert opinion because I don't really have one. <laughs> All right. Well, it does move- seem like we are, are, are somewhat in an era of a little bit more like like less of that kind of super team lack of parity that we saw with, you know, kind of Golden State and Cleveland going at it every year or whatever. Well, now let's go to one where you guys may have even more of an opinion. I'll take the Dolphins, Ravens, Chiefs, Eagles, Lions, and 49ers. Dolphins, Ravens, Chiefs, Eagles. Well, Niners. I'm picking. I'm picking the projected winner for each division. Yeah. Dolphins, Ravens, Chiefs, Eagles, Lions, 49ers. I'm taking those six. I'm giving you the other 24. Shane, you want to start? Oh, isn't this fun? By the way, no, it, it, it is. It is good. good football. Yeah, fun. no, I, I'm going to take the top six. I'm going to take the top, top six. six. Even though, you know, yeah. I are. I mean, those wouldn't necessarily be my top six of all the teams, but like, I I, w- I would take those uh, okay. at greater than fifty percent. I mean, a better a better question would be among the three choices you gave us, which of the three would be would you li- rather have the top, the bottom, the bottom? Oh, bottom. All right, so you're doing. Oh, you're yeah. the host now. That was my next question. Why oh, you- I see. Okay, I jumped ahead of you. Because uh, I, I didn't. I mean, my my basic sense is I probably would st- still take the top six, but I would argue that this is the one that's closest. You take the top six in the NBA? The, uh, the top 68 is the one I would want the most. Yeah, or, or I guess maybe if I could put it this way, if I could rank the leagues in terms of my like increasing preference for the underdog, yep. you know, the NBA would be the least preference for the underdog kind of set. The NHL would probably be the most preference for the underdog well, set. I'm gonna and then to- NFL and, and MLB... No, probably, me, probably probably MLB. I think is a little bit more unpredictable come playoff time than NFL. No, yeah, but that's because MLB it'd be come playoff time is unpredictable. But in the beginning of the season, and, and there's it's different. A lot of the uncertainty is still there in football in the beginning of the season. By the time we get to the end of the season, we know a lot. But I think that's where the uncertainty comes in right now. He's asking us before we played a game. Exactly before. So you, there's before a lot of randomness in the NFL year to year. By the oh time yes, the playoffs. Yeah. Then we'll know what's going to happen, but that's not what we're being asked. That's not what that's I asked true. you to do, that's right? True. And that's just true. in our last yeah. 20 seconds, since I don't have time to ask you guys about it, I was going to give you the top six teams in hockey, but this is ex- Adi's such a beautiful layup for me. We're halfway through the season or more. We know which teams are probably going to make the playoffs. So 
it's not like the six at the beginning of the season where some teams were uncertain about. Like the six I was going to name are the top six teams halfway through the season. Yeah. And that changes the math entirely. Well, guys, that's been one half of Wharton Moneyball. We have a guest, Ryan Floyd. He's going to talk to us about analytics for lacrosse in the second half. So stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Adi, I've always said one of the best things about Wharton Moneyball is we get to learn about other sports, and we get to also learn about the application of analytics to a whole range of sports. And today, I'm pretty sure in our 10-year anniversary month, if you'd like, we've never had someone talk to us about lacrosse analytics. And it's surprising to me because all three of my sons play lacrosse. Matter of fact, my son is at lacrosse practice right now. So I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to hear about I, lacrosse I, analytics. I'm, I'm actually amazed that we've never talked about lacrosse, considering it's a really popular sport, particularly among high school and college. And I think there's great data. And it's just our, it's definitely our professional, um, our, our, our five main sport bias. So it's definitely great to do it. I'm not sure how much I can contribute, but I'm not in the slightest bit surprised that you know a lot about lacrosse. Well, I, I try to know a lot about a lot of sports, but um, we're lucky to have Ryan Floyd with us here today. Uh, Ryan's a lifelong lacrosse player. Um, he's also been now using data and analytics and lacrosse for coaching. Uh, so, Ryan, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Well, let me first get started with maybe a basic question, which I don't know, maybe seems basic before we get to lacrosse. Like, how did you get into learning about analytics so that you can, you know, a lot of people could say, well, we'll be more data driven about lacrosse, but you actually have to have some skills to do something. So where did you pick up your data analysis skills? Um, I've always been a fan of spreadsheets. Um, grew up, my parents made a lot of spreadsheets. I work in finance and I've always thought to myself, oh, that's a neat concept. Can we think about it in terms of data? Could we make a little graph or a picture to understand the concept? And then uh, I, I love scatter charts. I love a good regression. I got the CFA, which kind of helps with statistics, but I'm kind of self-taught. I didn't take it in college or high school. So that's one good thing for our listeners out here. This happens with many of our guests is that just if I heard Ryan correctly, your full-time job you're not a statistician full time. You're no, not a soccer. No. You're not a lacrosse coach full time. You have a. Re- I hate to say it, not that that's not a real job, but you have a real job. And then all of a sudden, you you know now you're applying your analytic skills to a passion of yours. That's correct. Um, so why don't we get started? One of the things that's actually in your rundown here in the, the notes that were given to us is that. Um, you found a company that would convert the games into data. So just so we understand, before we get to the models, just to be clear, someone videotaped a bunch of lacrosse games, maybe of your youth U13 uh, league, sure. and someone converted that into data. Could you just tell us, before we even get into what you found or what you did, sure, sure. can you tell us about that process, about like, yeah. um, did someone do it by hand? Do they have some sort of AI engine now that can take that video data and just turn it into data. I'm just interested in that part of the process to start. Sure. So I was coaching in the Bay Area with my good friend, Joe Rosenbaum. The first year, we wanted some numbers. So we asked a dad on the sidelines who knew what he was doing to keep track of some statistics by quarter. He would run over to us by quarter with a little piece of paper and say, you know, this many possessions, this many ground balls, clearing was at this and this. And then we weren't winning. Our guys uh, were sort of upset. We were a little too nice. Uh, and we had some some trouble, I guess, with the way we were coaching. At the end of the year, we realized one of the parents had been filming all of the games, and a friend of a friend put us in touch with a company. The company doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Crossover, or it exists in a different way. Well, they actually, would take. Uh, let me interrupt because Crossover was founded by a Penn grad. Uh, yes, you know it very well. He sold his company to Huddle. There you go. So uh, we got in touch with Basu Kulkarni. You probably know him. And I don't remember exactly how we met him, but he said, yeah, we can take this film. Uh, we'll download it. And they sent it out, I think, to former lacrosse players who are like college guys who coded every single play. And I think maybe some people in South Asia because he had a connection with guys in, I think, maybe India and Pakistan. Uh-huh. And it was pretty amazing. So this is in the off season before the next year. We then 
had lots and lots of data to figure out what was working and what wasn't working. And it was actually pretty surprising. It wasn't really what we expected. So just for our listeners out there that don't know a ton about lacrosse, let me fill in a few things. And Ryan will correct me, but I think I've got these two things. I'm no expert in lacrosse. Um, when Ryan talks about ground balls, um, this isn't like baseball in the sense of like a ground ball up the middle is a base hit. In lacrosse, ideally, everything would stay in the air, meaning my stick to your stick. So ground ball is not usually a good thing. It means someone's dropped the ball or they've had it knocked out of their stick. And then clearing means if I'm on the if I'm on defense, my job is to get the ball to the other side of the midcourt line or midfield line, just so people know, because the offensive players can only stay on one side of the field. So clearing is a big thing in lacrosse. You, I mean, the two major, let's call it defensive stats, and Ryan, you'll tell me in a second about whether these are actually predictive of winning, is how often do you get ground balls? How often do you clear the ball, et cetera? So the, just so our listeners know, those are some of the details of the sports of lacrosse, a sport of lacrosse. That's exactly right. In high school, our high school team uh, had on the back of the shirt GBWG, which means ground balls win games. So ground balls are very, very important because you're always dropping balls, checking it out of other guys' sticks, and it's the best way to differentiate yourself. It's kind of like rebounds, maybe in basketball. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not very well noticed, but it's really important. One of the things you mentioned was about, and both in your skill set and what you did, was run a regression. So why don't we That's start right. with the beginning? Um, sure. When you run a regression model, there's a Y variable, the outcome you're trying to predict, and then there's a bunch of Xs. Why don't we first start, because I can imagine many different Y variables to choose from. What was the dependent variable or the Y variable you were trying to predict? Was it winning the game, yes, no? Was it the final score differential? Was it, you know, you could predict lots of things. So why don't we start there? What is it that you were trying to predict? Good question. We tried different Y variables. One was if we won the game. One was if we scored a lot of goals. And then we realized uh, a couple things. One is that uh, we needed to use quarterly data because we didn't actually have that many games. We had 11 games and the N was just too low. But if we multiplied it by four, gosh, you have 44, you have 48 discrete data, pieces of data. Well, that's really powerful. So we, we for Y, we used goal differential. And then the X variable was all kinds of things. We lined them up into two columns and we compared our figures with at the time, there really wasn't a lot of data in different, uh, different teams. So we compared our team against some Ivy League teams to see, are we doing about the same as other people? We found in some cases, it was almost exactly the same. In other cases, it was totally opposite. So even with 10 or 12 games, when we multiplied by four, that was enough data to get us started. Yeah. Adi? Is there like a reset in lacrosse that you could divide the quarter down even further into something like possessions? Good question. Yeah. So this was uh, this was very important. It's called offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. We got the idea from Michael Mobison. I think you guys are or he's a friend of the show. Yeah. So he's written a bit about lacrosse. He played at Georgetown many years ago. We were inspired by his work. So offensive efficiency is goals as a portion of possessions. And really good in lacrosse would be like 50 percent and not so good is maybe 15 percent. And for defense, it's just the reverse. So one of the important variables was in the Y column, we would have goal differential. And then in the X column, we would have offensive efficiency. So if we're scoring on most of our possessions, I, th I forget exactly where it crosses the X axis, but it was something like if we're scoring on more than 38% of our possessions, then we're going to win. If we're scoring on less than 20%, we're probably going to lose. And there are sort of keys to that, but that, that was very important, yes. How do you deal with the fact that, um, unlike in basketball, where when the other team scores, you get the ball, um, one of those frustrating things for us horrible sure. cross players is this thing called the face-off. And That's so right. how does that factor? And just so you know, Adi, if my team scores, it goes back to the midline where um, – whatever you want to call it. what's the name of the player that goes into the face-off guy the fate the two face -off face -off guy people. sometimes it's just a midfielder sometimes you'll put a long stick if you can't win otherwise now it's called fogo face-off get off so yeah just you know, Adi, 10... the guy that the person that does the face-off typically just wins or loses the face-off and then immediately runs off the field like sure. their specialist is just to gain the possession at midfield so how do you deal with the fact that you know you can't win the game if you don't have the ball 
That's right. My wife jokes around that I can kind of see guys that look like face-off guys from afar. They're like wrestlers. They're strong. They have yeah. strong forearms. And uh, it's a very important part of the game. Interestingly enough, as a wrinkle, the new version of the game called Sixes does not have a face-off. But yes, after a goal on 10 on 10 lacrosse, the ball goes back to the middle of the field. Funny enough is that face-offs really matter if you're horrible at it or if you're amazing. But if you're around the same level as the other player, it's really plus minus one or two possessions, which in lacrosse matters, but it is not really necessarily enough to win the game or not. But now there are so many good face-off guys that if you're not excellent at it, the other guy can win. We've seen games where uh, sometimes the opponent will win 90% of the face-offs, and then it's like make it, take it. That's a real problem. So I've got a bunch of questions for you, um, just based on what you said, sure. Ryan. And again, we're talking sure. to Ryan Floyd. Ryan Floyd's a full-time finance person, but he's also a lacrosse, <laughs> lifelong lacrosse player and coach. And we're talking about his use of analytics uh, in lacrosse. Um, it's interesting that you used, not wrong, but interesting that you used, like in some sense, your benchmark as college level teams. Like, let's see what a good college level team, like what percent of the face-offs do they win? What's their offensive efficiency? As some mm-hmm. sort of benchmark, because otherwise, as you're pointing out, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like you can say, well, our offensive efficiency is 30 percent, 40 percent. Is that good? How do we know whether that's good or not? How did you choose that as like the relevant? We'll try to be as good as they could possibly be. It's a good question. We just wanted to see if we were in the ballpark. You never know. In youth sports, some things are completely different, right? I mean, you would never think that uh, the shooter's reflexes are proportional to the goalie. Maybe kids are scared of the ball, but in college they're not. Well, we found out things like shooting percentage, offensive efficiency was generally in a similar, uh, let's say, similar general area as college. And it helped us say, all right, we're, we're in the same ballpark. We both played in college at high level, and uh, the, the, we don't have to reinvent the wheel We found, however, that clearing, bringing the ball from defense to offense was an area that was completely different. So at the youth level, catching and we call it dodging, running through one or two people is very, very difficult. Whereas by the time you're 18, 19, you've played a lot, you can move it up the field with relative ease. So clearing became almost the most important thing for our team. And we practice it over and over again to to give you some. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to ask you. One of the things I thought you mentioned, and, you know, this isn't a criticism, but, you know, we're statisticians here, so we got to do a little bit of testing of the Floyd statistical sure, method here. Yeah. It appeared yeah. that you mentioned something about, like, you have two columns. So did you look at just the bivariate relationship between Y and X? Or, like, when you ran, like, that's you could do that by a correlation. Or did you actually run, since you, as you mentioned, you only have, like, 11 or 12 games. You're doing it by quarter, so you only have 48 observations. Did you run a multiple regression, like where you saw the different importance of different features? Are there, let me just ask you, are there other, even forget the prediction of why, are there X's that are correlated in lacrosse? Like if you're bad at clearing, you're probably also bad at offensive efficiency because you probably can't throw the ball and catch the ball. So I'm just wondering just about all these things that could be related to each other in lacrosse. I, I, uh, I love I love your encouragement and enthusiasm. And I will make a confession that in our U13 coaching, we did not run multivariate regressions, but it was kind of an 80-20 type process where 20% of the work got us 80% of the way there. It was almost like 10% of the work got us 90% of the way there. Mm-hmm. So how do you, um, this is something else as I would this, and this is, this would be true of anybody. Um, how do you know, well, before I say ask that question, let me ask you a different one. Um, what were the big insights you have? You already mentioned to us about clearing the ball. And again, for our listeners, that means when you're on defense, you stop the other team, meaning they had the ball on offense. You've now taken possession of the ball, whether your goalie stops it with his stick, meaning catches the ball, or one of your defenders, typically a long stickman, doesn't have to be, gets the ball, or one of your short stick defenders gets a ground ball you got to get it to the other half of the field so that you're now on the offensive side of the ball. How, what, besides clearing, what other big empirical facts did you find that might not be, that might be a little bit surprising as to what's sure. related with winning or goal differential? 
Well, just to finish up on clearing. So yeah. we basically told our players that our offensive efficiency, literally we're handing out, they were learning fractions in schools. So you're handing out pages with numbers on them that if you cleared the ball, we typically scored on one third of our possessions. So that was as good as a third of a goal. So if you cleared the ball six times in a game, usually you'd have many, many more than that. It was like scoring two goals. And we had guys that never scored in a game, but they could get the ball over half field. That was a really, really big deal. I even had a friend who played very high level or a friend of a friend who played very high level college lacrosse that said, gosh, I never thought about it that way, that I could score without putting the ball in the net. There were kind of two other areas. One on offensive efficiency, we we sort of thought it's all about shot selection. This sounds obvious to anyone who plays basketball, but Joe and I made a, a great. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I love this. Keep going. I, Cause I, when yeah. I read this, I was like, this is no, <laughs> I love this and how you use it against the other team too, but keep going. That's right. That's right. So Vasu had kind of amazing uh, infographics at crossover. So it showed where we were scoring and we could kind of calculate the shooting percentages. And basically it's not that difficult. Like, there's no two point line or three point line. There's one in pro, but at youth and college, there's no three point line in lacrosse. So you generally want to get either close to the goal or you want to shoot from outside with no one on your hands, no one checking you. And so that's what we coached for. We had an offensive uh, set called motion offense, but we really, really coached for shooting the good shot. We did not coach towards scoring goals, which I think a problem in all levels of sport is coaching to the coaching to the why we just wanted good shots. So if you're shooting from outside, I think we found that, we ended up scoring about 10 or 15% of those shots. Whereas if we waited and we were patient, we would score about 45% of the shots from in close. Uh, that was extremely powerful. Guys understood that instinctively and would wait to take a better shot. It's very hard to coach, but if you're coaching, we want to score a goal. You know, it doesn't, to me, that is nonsense. It doesn't really mean anything, but shot selection was everything. Uh, happy to talk about how we did it on defense. Too. Yeah, I, want, I do. I want to get to that in a second. But let me ask you, I'll call it some rapid fire yes, no questions. Just in okay, great. By the way, who next week will be watching three squash uh, lacrosse games of my son. So um, when you mentioned clearing. Yes. I, I can clear the ball. I'll get it and just fling it to the other side of the field. So did okay. you have any, which by the way, doesn't mean my team's going to get it. So when you look at these kind of stats, do you look at like I cleared it and it was caught by my offensive guy, or that's I, I just want to say, or is that too high a level of sophistication for the analysis no. you're interested in? That is not too high of a level. Chucking it up the field is not considered clearing. Part of that is that it leads to a ground ball, so it's pretty rare, at, at least up until maybe you're 16, to chuck the ball up the field and the guy catch it right away. I mean, people do it, but it's it's not so good. So we really encouraged, in practices, we would say, on defense, you have to connect 10 to 20 passes, which is unusual. But we would play kind of half field, keep away before bringing it over the line. But then, of course, the dream to a coach is that you have someone who's really fast with wide shoulders who can just run through the opposing attack without turning it over. That is a very special person. The person honestly doesn't get that much credit because that person doesn't always score a lot of goals, but that's another way to do it. But chucking it up the field is, is bad news. Uh, okay, so that really coaches at any be, level discourage that. Yeah. You wouldn't even code that as a successful clear. That would, no, that would be, you got the ball over the midline. Look, if you throw a 30 yard pass and the guy catches it, that's a good clear. Right. Uh, if if you throw it and he drops it and then you're fighting over it, that's a turnover, and then that's a ground ball. So before we get to the defensive side, I have two other questions about offense. Sure. Um, maybe you didn't look at this since maybe I just want to know if you code it. Um, should you shoot the ball on the ground? Just so people shoot know. The ball. You mean <laughs> like a bounce no, no. shot? Yeah. So just so people know in lacrosse, um, unless you're right up next to the goal, which is typically called the crease. Just like in sure. hockey, though, Shane, you can't go into the circle. Like the, the goalie has a certain amount of space you can't go into. Um, there you might try to stuff it in or shoot it directly in the net. The, the, the thought from us novices is that if you're outside of that area, you shoot the ball hard on the ground and it's harder for the goalie who's got this big net to, to shoot it, uh, to stop it. 
Is that true? Should you shoot the ball on the ground? It's a good question. Generally speaking, goalies have trouble with bounce. It's called a bounce shot where you have one bounce before it goes in the goal. Uh, Maybe up until uh, the age of 14, which might be 12 now. That is a pretty good shot because goalies will have trouble getting it off the ground. Although on turf, it's a little easier. Yep. After eighth grade, it actually is a bad shot, and goalies pick that up. You slow the speed of the ball slows down a little bit, and as you could imagine, the length of time between it coming out of your stick and actually hitting the ground is longer than going straight into the goal. It's only you know a couple nano you know milliseconds, but uh, usually you go straight for the net. The another type of shot is that you roll it along the ground underhanded. Yep. And most coaches don't like it when players shoot like that because you don't have as much control. So you kind of have to, a player has to earn his ability to or the right really to shoot those kinds of shots. And then I have one more question, then I want to turn it over to Adi, and then I see Shane has a question as well. Um I always found it interesting. Now we will get to the game of sixes in a second. I guess you guys you called it sixes. Um right. Should you have a player at X? And just so everybody understands what that means in the cross, it means it's a player. You're on offense, and you put a player behind the goal, both to pass the ball around. But if the ball goes out the end line, then the team of the player closest to the ball, when it goes out the end line, gets the ball back on offense. And if you have someone behind the goal, you're more likely to get it. But on the other hand, then you have one less offensive player in front of the goal. So I right. always wondered about this. Should you have someone at X? Or should you? Would you rather have six people, six offensive people in front of the goal instead of five and one person behind it, who's definitely not scoring from the X position? Sure, I actually played a lot at X during my career. I liked it. I like catching the ball and having everyone turn around, and it was fun to pass from back there. Generally, the way you coach is that when the ball is up front, when it's in front of the goal, the guy at X should be at least at what's called the goal line extended, which means that he could catch the ball and shoot and score right away. As the ball moves around the side of the goal, he pops back to catch the ball. And if he's not open, he does what we call in lacrosse is cut through. He gets out of there, and then another person catches the ball. You run it through X. X is kind of a special spot in lacrosse because you get the whole defense to turn their head, and the goalie also. So in coaching, often I'll just be screaming, through X, through X, because it's very tempting uh, to bring the ball down one side and then bring it up from that side and that's very easy for the defense they don't have to turn their head their back is never to their player the goalie never has to turn but once you get it through x and bring it through the other side suddenly you can send cutters all over the place and and it's harder to defend at least in my opinion so so before we go to the defensive side because i thought that was the most interesting the way you had the other team shoot the ball let me go to adi and then to shane so adi please yeah, well, this is definitely in the weeds on, on lacrosse for me. But listening <laughs> to your conversation um, reminds me a lot of the early days of basketball analytics when Dean Oliver and sure. the, the basketball on paper and the possession-based four factors. Um, is there something like that for lacrosse? And if not, should I have students getting good data and trying to create that? I mean, what did you – the four factors – There are a handful of sources. Yeah. So the NCAA codes each play. They have decent data on – uh quarters but it's funny they don't publish um i don't know why they don't publish possessions so if you want to figure out a possession uh there are different ways to do it but one is face-offs plus clears plus the other team's lost clears so that's like possessions by quarter but you have to do it manually so if you're watching a game you can kind of figure out from the scoreboard how many possessions they've had so wait can you in the box score can you get a good estimate of the number of possessions just this way through clears and faceoffs. Because that's it's how a, I mean that's how the the four factors is essentially done from from box score data. Is they don't they just look in basketball. Well, how many shots? How many rebounds? How okay, many interesting. And they just use that with a. It's a very simple formula, and it okay. estimates the number of possessions, and then they use that in denominators to turn the scoring, the rebounding, the turnovers, the free throws into efficiency scores, and then the, you can build a multiple regression mm-hmm. to kind of figure out how much these things matter. Um, this such such analysis exists. There's a really wonderful website. I, for, uh, I forget exactly. I think it's called Lacrosse Reference. There might be a hyphen in there, and they do a great job on a play by play and school by school basis. I think it's only for college, but they do a wonderful job calculating 
these different ratios, but generally it is in the early days. If you read articles about a lacrosse game, they rarely mention these figures. Uh, I, watch or the, of, I watch a lot of lacrosse on TV, and I'm going to tell you, I don't think I've ever heard an analytic <laughs> discussion. No, no, no. There's college lacrosse all the time on TV, Adi. You're looking at me. There's a, there's a lot of lacrosse right. on TV, and you can watch the pro leagues and stuff. And since I have three Absolutely. sons that play lacrosse, I love the game. But you just, I just, it's unlike basketball today, baseball today, certainly NFL today. You just, I've ne- matter of fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard an analytic sentence on a lacrosse broadcast. Here, here. Well, we're changing it right now through this discussion. So uh, I love it. Yeah, there you go. Not, I wonder <laughs> what it's going to take to to change that because you say there is stuff out there. So what's been the obstacle? Is it to its its uh, its um, use? Is it is it potentially that no one showed the value in it? Is that I will say there's one. I'm good friends with Bobby Benson who coaches at Providence, and he uses these figures. We played on the same line in high school, and he was an amazing player and he's an amazing coach. He coached at Maryland. We enjoy going back and forth about these figures, but at least in my experience, it's not so widely used. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, here, here we are, we're building the yeah, future. Well, but I think that's a real opportunity. We're getting it done on Wharton Moneyball here. <laughs> you guys are changing the world. One, one lacrosse analytics discussion. So Shane, I know you wanted to jump in and then I have two final questions for uh, Ryan. Well, I guess uh, my kind of question or comment was going to be basically along these sort of lines of like, you know, obviously, I I think a lot baseball was very much aided by, you know, kind of some creation of some sort of wins above replacement, some kind of omnibus sort of like measure that would kind of allow us to kind of compare the different ways in which, you know, players contribute to scoring opportunities. And obviously you talked earlier about how you focus on kind of opportunity creation rather than the actual kind of like outcome of whether sure. it's up in a goal or not. So I guess basically how close would you, do you think, you know, the kind of collect the data that is the kind of possession level or play-by-play level data that you have out there, is it sufficient to create some kind of, you know, the lacrosse version of a wins above replacement statistic. And if I haven't not, seen this. And if not, what is missing, basically? It's a what good is kind of question. Missing? Lacrosse yeah. reference may do this, but in general, I haven't heard the goal equivalent or win equivalent player of a defensive midfielder versus an offensive attackman and or wins above a replacement for uh, this or that attackman. Um but it just suggests there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that the PLL could do and Division One lacrosse and other levels of lacrosse could do. Lacrosse is wide open. There are all kinds of things we don't know, which are really obvious. Like how we have these things called four on threes, which are fast breaks. Not many people even know what portion of those go become a goal in practice or a game. Uh, these are like kind of basic things that it would seem that if you, you have people Tahaki on the sideline. So he understands, and he understands there's penalties in lacrosse. So he gets. Yeah, it, it would be like not tracking separately, like power play situations from regular. <laughs> we have that. We have extra man up, uh, data, which is pretty good, but not fast break data. Uh, yeah, I guess. Right, right. So, Ryan, let me ask you two last questions, maybe a minute each on a minute each sure. on these. Um, sure, sure. The first is tell, tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball about how you encourage the other team, you tr- you teach your team how to encourage the other team to take shots from low probability areas? Good question. And this has changed a little bit, even in the last 20 years. Uh, a, a, couple of, a couple of things. One is to play defense very, very hard on the ball. In lacrosse, you have this thing called sliding, which is that it's easy to beat a guy, uh, kind of like in basketball, but then you have to help. Another player has to go help. It's not called a double team, but it's like, kind of like a double team. But when that player goes to help, they leave another player wide open. And so the players in the backside, they have to do what we call slough off and or collapse around the crease. And that leaves other people open. It's usually on the backside. That's pretty far out. And so what we really taught everybody is that we wanted everyone to slough off their guy, which is this head on a swivel idea in lacrosse, to pack it in so there aren't easy shots on the crease. But that means we give up easy shots from the outside. And we were just willing to say that because of these same figures that if they're shooting on the crease to the open guy, or if they're just running by our player with no slide, that's an easy goal. So we needed to slide. The controversy now is 
how about just have that defender so good that no one ever runs by that defender and that guy ends up shooting with someone on his hands? And that That's even better if you could uh, do Yeah, it. that would be nice if you could get those guys. So maybe yeah. one last question I was going to ask you is, um, it, it's clear you have a passion for this. Um, it's changed you as a coach. It sure. changed your excitement for the sport. And these are all wonderful things. But I'm going to ask you, maybe it's a strange question, but like since you also have a small sample size in your data, how do mm-hmm. you know that what you're doing has worked? Like, what is it that you look at that says, you know, because you don't have a thousand games. Like, this isn't an A-B experiment also where sure. you've got, like, let's randomly assign some of our time we'll do this and sometime this. We got before and after. You don't have any of that. So how, That's do you, right. how do you think about, well, what we're doing is working? Well, the clearing was the most obvious, where if we were clearing 65%, in college you clear like 90 95%. So if we can... Uh, narrow that distance and then you're winning more quarters that's that's the obvious way so if it's kind of like well the i think it's maybe in sample out of sample but in in history if you did it one way and we were losing and then we make this corrective and then in turn you begin winning uh, well that's a sign of success and we joe and i took a, it's a small thing but we took kind of small sized team to I think it was playoffs in this league in the Bay Area. We had a lot of fun doing it. And I think scoring more goals and winning more quarters is, is, a, is a great output that you can have by making these small changes. Well, Ryan, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on uh, Wharton Moneyball. We've been joined by Ryan Floyd. Ryan's a lifelong lacrosse player and the first guest ever in our 10 years of Wharton Moneyball to talk about lacrosse analytics. And he does it as a, it's not even his full-time job, if you'd like. It's as he's right. just doing it on the side, as many of us parents do. Um, but Ryan, thank you for joining us here. On thank Wharton. you, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank Anytime. you for teaching us something about lacrosse and lacrosse analytics. So this has been one hour of our show here on Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, my two colleagues, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey here every week on Morton Moneyball. Between now and then, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your sports. We'll see you next week here on Morton Moneyball. <laughs>